How good is that? Changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. Doesn't get any better than that, does it? That's great. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the great words of hymn writers and songwriters that help us to uh, praise your wonderful and glorious name. Lord, thank you that you are daily about changing our minds and our hearts and our lives uh, to see and wonder at your glory and your grace and your goodness. Lord, thank you for Jesus who opens the way for us to see you and relate with you. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who shows us truth and light and goodness. So Lord, as we talk together this morning, I pray that your words will enter uh, our minds, our hearts and our lives and bring us more closely to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the quick summary is done. Um, so the context of what we've discussed so far is glory of God, paramount, union with Christ, essential, clarity of the spirit leads us to truth. Um, and what we talked about was everything we have, everything we are, everything that is moving us forward is all of grace. Not, not just our salvation moment or period, but every moment of every day uh, is by the grace of God. We, we are people who are being transformed. We're not there, right? I only have to look in the mirror to realise we're not there yet. But we are being transformed. And every one of our experiences is an act of grace of God in our lives. And knowing the, the triune God in this fullness uh, shapes how we live. Um, understanding the image and likeness of God shapes how we live. You know, it's, it's interesting way back in Genesis, uh, it talks about how we are made in the image and likeness of God. That image never goes. It's, it's, it's tainted by our sinfulness. And our likeness of God dribbles away. We can no longer be as we were meant to be. But what happens is that Christ comes and, and polishes up, if you like, that image and brings us back into a state where we're becoming more and more like God, Christ-like. And how wonderful is that? And so... Knowing the triune God is so incredibly important. When people talk about how we are to live, it's not long before we start talking about freedom. And, and the scriptures talk a lot about freedom, but the way that the scriptures talk about freedom is very different to the way the world looks at freedom. Right? Uh, our freedom is actually slavery. Our freedom is slavery to Christ. That's the ultimate freedom. The ultimate freedom is to have no choice. You realise that? The ultimate freedom is to have no choice but to respond to Christ. That's it. That, that is the beauty of being a slave to Christ. There are only two options. 
slavery to sin, slavery to Christ. They're the two options, right? One's positive, one's not. Um, one is, is self-focused, one leads us to destruction, uh, and one brings us the greatest possible security. And so the, there are aberrant views of freedom in the world, and we have to be really careful that we don't buy into those aberrant views of freedom. You know, lots of, uh, lo- lots of modern-day... Um, Influencers, that's a, that's a word that's probably foreign to most of you, but there are, we are surrounded by influencers in the media. Um, and their, their, their fundamental principle is you do you. You be you. You speak your truth. Um, and that is such a, an abhorrent situation. I don't want to be me. I want, I, want to be, I want to be like Christ. I don't want to be me. I'm, I'm not pleasant, right? Um, so th- this whole worldly philosophy is you do you. Or, as we looked at last week, does God own me as his child? How much more freeing that is to be locked into that relationship. Um, just be yourself. Or be united with Christ. I don't want to be myself. I want to be united with Christ because I know that he has far better plans for me than I have for me. Uh, He has far more pure plans for me than I have for me. He has far more meaningful plans for me than I have for me. And and this this world in which um, we live without Christ means that I, I think I'm able to determine my own destiny. But it's not true. I only think I am able to determine my own destiny. Therefore, what becomes most important? My self-expression becomes the most important, right? And this is, I'm, a, I'm an educator. This is invaded education. Self-expression has invaded education. It's invaded the creative arts. It's invaded every aspect of life. That self, self-expression is the paramount thing. And it's just not. Um, and that leads to whatever I do is my business and you have no right to challenge me. My body is my body. I should do with my body what I want to do with my body. And where does that lead? We know where that leads, right? Um, and so those choices are actually aberrant choices and they lead to misery. And some of us have experienced that by taking those choices. What's the other option? Well, the other option is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. He says, you are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, in everything you do, in all that you say, uh, in the, all the ways that you live. And that's not some behaviourist thing. Um, that we're going to find difficult to achieve because what we've said over the last three or four weeks is God enables us to do this. The Christ in us does this. The Spirit um, bringing truth to our lives shows us that this is the way to be and therefore we can have confidence that that is what we are being transformed into, that we are being transformed into people who will glorify God. In, an, in our body 
in our lives, in the way that we think, in the way that we live. I've printed the Heidelberg Catechism on there because it sums it up. And um, I think we should say this together. It's always good to do things together, isn't it? And so let me ask the question, and together we can provide the answer. So the Heidelberg uh, Catechism, which was written uh, nearly 500 years ago now, um, is, is a confessional statement and, and confessional statements are really important in the Christian life, you know. Um, a, the simplest confessional statement is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's a confessional statement, right? It's something that we, we synthesize and own. And so this, this uh, Heidelberg Catechism is a synthesized understanding of what the scriptures say in answer to this question. And so the question is, what is your only comfort? Uh, What is your only certainty in life and death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Woohoo! That's just such a fabulous statement, isn't it? It's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, and this, the triune God, uh, understanding the triune God, and just seeing the way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love and serve one another. Um, and, and that DNA is in us because we're made in the image of God and now restored to his likeness. That DNA imprint is in us. We are designed to love and serve. And just how good that is. And and by the grace of God, we're being incorporated into that. We are being embraced into the life of the Trinity. Let me just spend a little bit of time in John 17 because it's important for us to know um, just how certain it is that God is causing us to share in his glory. So let's have a look at that. John 17, first five verses. Um, When Jesus had spoken these words, and the words he was talking about was how he'd overcome the world and and brings peace, but also that there will be temporary tribulation. So they're the words that come before this. When Jesus had spoken these words, uh, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. To give eternal life. Notice there's nothing in there that says, I'll give them eternal life if they earn it, if they show that they deserve it. Nothing. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life wonderful definition, that they know you. Woohoo! The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory, 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 he said. Then whizzing down to verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, that's you and me. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. See that? That they will relate together in the way that we, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, relate together. Perfect love, perfect in, in relationship with one another. That's where we're headed. We're not there yet because we still have an occasional argument and difference, right? But that's where we're headed. And then down in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Say it again. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. Passed on. That they may be one, even as we are. We are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, heavenly home, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That is such, such a powerful passage of scripture, right? You see, the, the ultimate goal is to see the glory of God which will transform us. The ultimate goal is to see this wonder, this incredible love and grace of God that will transform us. And love is the vehicle. What God has called us to is to love him and to love people. What are the two greatest commandments? To love God and to love people, right? That's it. And yet it is so hard without the person of Christ and without the power of the Holy Spirit. But with those, with the triune God, that's what we're being transformed into. And, and there's the foundation of what the way that we are called to live. If we understand the depth of that love and the motivational power, if you like, of that love, it will transform the, the way that we live. Because we'll be in no doubt, we can be in no doubt after reading that passage about how much we are loved by, by the one who is holy, righteous, pure and perfect. Sometimes we don't feel it. That's not the issue. Is it true is the issue. Yes, it is. And in verse 24, just look at that again. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
And we could make a case also, which would be absolutely true, that God has loved us since the foundation of the world. We're going back in history this morning because I want to have a quick look at some points that uh, Jonathan Edwards made way back in 1738. He came up with this uh, sermon called Heaven, a World of Love. And in this sermon, he, he pointed out 10 ways that the love that we understand in the world is very different from the love that God promises us. And, and that, um, that really human understanding of love is deficient and can even be tragic. Uh, and, and I just want to talk about five of those very quickly. The first one, he says, all of our love is somehow conditional. Just think about that. All of our love is somehow conditional as human beings, that there are limits on the way we love. There are conditions on love. Our love is inconsistent. And so our our love is, in in a human sense, is conditional. Secondly, he said, our human love is hard to express. We are very stunted in our ability to communicate or to demonstrate or to express or to live out our love. Thirdly, he says, there, there is very rarely, if at all, a full mutuality or reciprocity. What does he mean by that? I may well love somebody, they may not love me. Or I may love somebody more than they love me. Or that person loves me more than I love them. There is very rarely um, a mutuality, a reciprocity that is full. And there's a tragedy of loving someone who doesn't love you as much as you love them. There's a sadness in that, right? Or the awkwardness of somebody loving you more than you love them. You know, you, you know you'll be thinking about little experiences in your life at this point, right? Fourth point, he says, that is that love needs the loved one to be happy. You know, when we love somebody, we want them to be happy, right? And when they're not, what happens to us? We're not happy, right? Um, if, 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 we, um, if we realize that the person we love is not content, is not happy, that has an effect on us. Uh, that, that's what love is. When we love someone, we feel their sadness. And sometimes we actually feel their sadness more deeply than they might. Because we want to do something about it, but we can't. Right? Um, and that's never more true than with our children. Right? Um, the, the number of times uh, with our kids growing up where I wanted to rescue them uh, from, a, from a situation, you know, they, they were not happy and I wanted to do something about that, but you can't. Um, and somebody once said, once you have children, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. Just think about that. And fifthly, he says that we never want to say goodbye to those that we love. Um, we live in the tension that at some point we'll be separated from those we love. That's, that's all from a human perspective. Can you see how, how tragic those things can be? And Edwards is pointing these things out. And then he went on in his sermon to say, nothing in the world can satisfy those things. We are built 
We are built for the fullness of love in the family or kingdom of God. That's the only place that we will find that authentic love. And he says, to answer those five questions then, all of our love is somehow conditional? He says, well, heavenly lovers, uh, when we are in the presence of God, will have no doubt whatsoever about the love of each other and for each other. We can trust heavenly love. The second point, he says, our, our love is so hard to fully express. And he says, when we are in the presence of God, nothing will hinder our expression of love. There will be no impurity, there will be no lack in the expression of that genuine love. And then the question of there is not a full mutuality or reciprocity, he says, uh, love is always fully and fondly returned. I love that phrase. Love is fully and fondly returned when we're in the presence of God. And love needs the loved one to be happy. Uh, he says when we're in the presence of God, there will be un uninterrupted joy. Um, every tear wiped away, right? And we never want to say goodbye to those we love. And he says, in heaven, that prospect will never cross our minds. We will be eternally united with God and one another. And so all those tragedies about love's unattainability will disappear. So, fine. How does that help us now? Um, that's, that's a wonderful anticipation, right? But how does it help us now? Well, we go back to it again. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So it is happening. And ultimately, it will occur. And that, that gives us um, an immense delight in the future, doesn't it? Where all, all those um, frustrations will no longer exist. And we can live in the light of that future. You know, we, we constantly live in delight of the future, right? Um, we're planning a, a, a trip in September, October, and Maureen is living in the delight of that future, right? Every day she plans something more, right? Because we're living in the delight of that future. And we can live in the delight of the future promises that we read about in John 17. Where, where do we see, how do we see God's love most clearly? It must be in his, the sacrificial act of the triune God in redeeming his people for his glory. It's a sacrificial act. So we must, we must conclude that love involves, love as we are to live it out now as God's people probably has an element of sacrifice to it, a sacrificial nature. And as I said, we're called to love and to serve people. That's it. We're called to love and serve God. We're called to love and serve people. That's it. Um, and one of those ways of glorifying God 
is to reflect his sacrificial love, to live in that way, to live in a way that, that reflects the way that God relates to us. So let's have a look at Matthew 5:13, and these are well-known passages, but uh, let's see if we can put them into the context of what we've been talking about. Matthew 5:13-16, "You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, by living in a way of sacrificial love, what do we do? We bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. Why? Because we are reflecting who he is. You see. And this comes, follows directly after the Beatitudes and where the Beatitudes tell us what the kingdom of God will be like. Uh, and the, the writer says here that... Um, Salt, we are, we are salt. But no, not just salt, but the salt. Never underestimate small words. We are the salt. And we are called to preserve that which is good and healthy, to enhance the flavour of life, also to create thirst. You see, these are the things salt does, right? That, that salt preserves that which is good and healthy. It enhances flavour. It creates thirst. It was applied to wounds for healing in the time that we're writing here. Salt has a, a, a sharpness to its flavour, right? You notice something when it's salty. And the only way for salt to lose its flavour is to be diluted with something else. That's the only way. So otherwise salt remains salty. And notice what it says about light. Not just light, but the light. Right? Light overcomes darkness. Truth is seen in the light. Light is attractive and compelling. Um, you know, the thing about Christmas is you go touring around looking at people who've lit up their houses with lights, right? There's, there's something uh, compelling and attractive about light. Light cannot be hidden. It's impossible to hide light. Hidden light, if there's no light, there's darkness. Darkness has no existence of its, of its own. It's simply the absence of light, right? But we won't go into the physics of that. And bear in mind that combined lights the body of Christ, combined lights are brighter than small individual lights. And then, let's see another small word. What does it say? You are the salt of the earth. Not you will be, not you can if you try hard enough, but you are. You are by the very fact that God has called you to be his child. You are the light of the world. He doesn't say you will be salt 
you can become salt, or if you, if you follow me long enough, I will make you into salt. No, he says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And that is a consequence of our union with Christ. Jesus is not telling his disciples to be something they're not. He's telling them what they are as his kingdom people. There's no arrogance in this. There's no superiority in this because we didn't get ourselves to be salt and light. We are salt and light by the determination and action of the triune God. And so there's no arrogance in this. There is no superiority in this. We are what we are by grace, we saw last week. John Piper has this very interesting statement, which I think is worth remembering, because we're still prone in our not yet complete transformation to be critical people. Um, and, And John Piper points this out and tells us, because we are salt and light, Um, there are certain things we should not do. And he says, the salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. Think about that. It's very easy for us to say, we're redeemed, we're people of God, they're not. Look at the way they behave. And John Piper's saying, "That's, that's that's not our role. That's not what we're meant to do. That's not being salt and light. That is being critically... Uh, judgmental and it's not what we're called to do. So the salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. Where it can, it saves and seasons. And where it can't, it weeps. And the light of the world does not withdraw saying good riddance to godless darkness. It labours to illuminate, but not dominate. We don't own culture And we don't rule it. We serve it with broken-hearted joy. Just love that. And then it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Children reflect their parents. Right? And children of the Father will reflect the Father. And Spurgeon again, can't get a week without Spurgeon, right? The object of our shining is not that men may see how good we are, nor even see us at all, but they they may see grace in us and God in us and cry, what a father these people must have. Another good statement, right? So his glory among us, his love that he's poured into our lives, uh, causes us to grow uh, and causes us to live with meaning and purpose and that love and grace and truth that he is pouring into us. And let's have a look at First Peter. Um, just a few verses there, First Peter 4, 7 to 11. And Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion for ever and ever. Covers all these things that we're talking about, right? And he starts off by saying, uh, the end of all things is at hand, therefore. So every time there are practical commands um, in Paul's letters or in Peter's letters, every time there are practical commands, they're based on a practical reality. Um, See, the modern world tells us that nothing is actually knowable. You realise that. We can know nothing about the existence of God. You know, the, the arguments against God are rational. Well, that's not how we understand God, right? You, you can't logically uh, persuade people into the kingdom of God. That's not the way it works. Um, the modern world says we can know nothing about the existence of God, the meaning of life, uh, whether human nature is sinful. See, the modern world would deny that human nature is sinful. Um, basically, they think we're idiots for thinking there is such a thing um, as sin. But somehow the world says racism is wrong, uh, abuse is wrong, sexual freedom is right. Hmm. Okay. Because there is no therefore um, before their, their thinking... There is no um, presuppositional truth basis, right? There is no conviction about the nature of things. There is no foundation. And so if we say racism and violence are wrong, but sexual freedom is okay, then the question for me becomes, if we're going to follow the rational argument, why are we okay to follow our sexual desires but not our aggressive desires? What makes one right and one not right? Do you follow it, the, 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 those who claim to be logical are in fact not. Um, and, it, and our problem becomes it is, it's difficult to share um, objective truth with a subjective culture. Um, it, that, that we almost seem to be speaking two different languages sometimes, right? Well, we are. Um, and what Peter says here is that Um, to be sober-minded, he talks about being sober-minded, be self-controlled and sober-minded. What what does that mean? It means to be be absolutely in touch with a genuine reality. Um, If there is a God, that's a silly statement, isn't it? There is a God, therefore, there are moral absolutes. And if that's true, then one day there will be a reckoning, right? There has to be. Um, If that's true, then to live as though there won't be is crazy. And that's, that's the meaning of that the end of all things is at hand, therefore, and he gives us a list of things. What he's saying is there will come a time when there will be a reckoning. Therefore, this is the way you should live. You follow. See, it's, it's, it's one thing to embezzle funds from your employer. It's, a, it's another thing to embezzle the day before the annual audit, right? 
Um, you know, there, there is a day coming and today that day is closer than it was yesterday. And if we're not living as though there is a day of reckoning and that it's near, then we're fooling ourselves. And if we believe that the end is always possible and getting nearer, then it will encourage us to live with integrity and love. And so, why does this imminent return then cause us to love and not be afraid? See, this, this is not, these are not behaviours that Peter's saying, you know, you've got to behave this way, otherwise when Christ returns you're going to be in trouble. He's not saying that. He's, he's saying when Christ returns you will see the joy that you've been anticipating and that has motivated you to live in the way you're called to live. So this imminent return that causes us to love is because we're not afraid of that reckoning. We have no fear of that reckoning because our sin has been dealt with, right? We are restored people. We'll be meeting the one who has promised us no condemnation. So we're not looking forward to the return of Christ with any fear at all. We're looking at the return of Christ with great joy because we know that when he comes, I'm not going to be cast out. I'm loved, right? But disobedience, you see, says... The way I live, making my own choices, will actually benefit me more than living in God's love. So wrong. So wrong. And all people are either going to face judgment or mercy and grace. They're your only two options. There is no alternative that says we will face nothing. They're the two options. And if I'm secure... In the love of God, I'll love. That's it. The end of all things means that we will be embraced by Jesus. We will meet face to face the one who has redeemed us. Hallelujah. And Luke 15 is the story of how that meeting will be. Um, Luke 15 tells us the story of the prodigal son. His father saw him ran and embraced him and kissed him. Yay! That's, that's what will happen. Um, that Jesus will see us, he will run and embrace us and kiss us. Yay! And that is a compelling motive for the way that we are to live the way that we are to live as and in the body of Christ. And Peter talks about a number of things, and let's just finish with these quickly. He talks about prayer, he talks about love, he talks about hospitality, service, praise, worship. Prayer. It, see, knowing this truth, this anticipating uh, of Christ coming, uh, prayer is the action and language and sign of dependence. That's what prayer is. It's saying, I cannot depend upon myself, I have to depend upon God. It's not weakness. 
it's, it's rightness. It's where we need to be. Um, we, we are to be people who seek to be led by the preeminent Christ. Peter says we are to love deeply and earnestly with complete commitment and energy and love and affirmation um, and, and tough and true love. You know, we are to call each other out in love where we do things wrong. Speak the truth in love, right? It needs to be sincere and genuine and, and um, a quality that John talks about time after time after time. It's the vital sign of our relationship with Christ. John says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. And by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, let's not get the order wrong. Oh, oh, I need to show my love for other people so that people will see that I'm a disciple of Christ. No, I am a disciple of Christ, therefore I will love, you see. Um, this is beyond human expectation, um, this, this love for one another that reflects the love of God for us. And Paul, writing to the Colossians, says pretty much the same thing. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's the starting point. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In other words, know your, your relationship and then reflect that relationship. And he says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these... Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Peter talks about this love and he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Now again, let's not go down the humanistic path that says, that's because sin doesn't matter. In other words, our love says, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter. Sin, no, we can, we can pass over that. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that love hides or overlooks sin. It does not mean that love avoids confrontation and challenge. It doesn't mean that love shies away from discipline. But what it does mean is love is ready to forgive and forgive and forgive again and again and again. Love finds a way to be patient and kind whilst not avoiding the truth. He says, offer hospitality without grumbling. In other words, hospitality is one of the examples, he says, of love in action. Um, hospitality has the same root word as the word hospital. Um, and in other words, we are to love the broken, the wounded, the lonely, the despairing. Um, and Paul writes to the Colossians, he said, once you were alienated and hostile. Now, it begins with the same, same word, right? Um, that, that prefix hos, H-O-S, means stranger. And uh, Do we provide hospitality or hostility? Being hospitable means welcoming the stranger. In other words, the stranger becomes a guest. You're inviting that, that person to be part of the family. Being hostile means being opposed to or rejecting the stranger. 
the stranger becomes an enemy, right? And we're, we're, we're talking about, or Peter is telling us, out of your love, out of your understanding of God's love for you, practice hospitality, welcome the stranger, visit those in prison. Um, and and he's, he's talking about, it doesn't matter how people got themselves into a situation, love them. Welcome them. You know, and, and the number of times in the scriptures where we're encouraged to visit those in prison um, and, to, and to relate to people. You see, we find it very easy to relate to people who've sinned accidentally, you know, who've fallen into sin. But people who've deliberately made the wrong choices, oh, we're not so sure. No difference. We are to love. And that's why... Things like prison ministry are such an important part of being a Christian community. And we have to recognise that our society, although it looks um, confident, is in fact racked with pain and fear and shame and guilt. Um, and, and our response is not to be judgmental about that. Um, but to look at people's lack of contentment and loneliness and emptiness and open our hearts. And that's hard, actually, isn't it? Sometimes. And then he goes on, nearly finished, to say, and do it without grumbling. He, he knows us, doesn't he? I mean, how many times do we do things resentfully? Oh, I have to do this. No, no it's just do it without grumbling. Don't, don't moan about it. Uh, don't be hospitable, secretly wishing that you don't have to be hospitable. Maureen and I visited a church which shall remain nameless some years ago. Um, we were invited there to, <coughs> to speak at the church and afterwards the pastor's wife was in the kitchen uh, making cups of tea and she said, I have to do this every week. Nobody else volunteers. And I thought, hmm. Maybe better not to do it, <laughs> if that's the attitude, right? But we can fall into that, right? We can fall into that. Look beyond um, to see the image of Christ in people, however tainted it may be. So grace is not just for those who make mistakes. Grace is also, also for the willfully disobedient. Have there been times in my life where I've been willfully disobedient? Yep. And then, finishing off in 1 Peter 4, a couple of verses there, as each has received a gift, use it for what purpose? To serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Every person has been given gifts. Every person has been denied gifts. Let me say that again. Let's put it another way. Not every person has been gifted fully. Why? So that we might depend on one another. See? Our, our weaknesses are also gifts from God. Why? So that we may depend upon somebody else's gift and by doing so, 
we become a body, right? And so never look at yourself and say, oh, that person is so gifted and I'm not. The reason that person is gifted is so that you might depend on on them and they might, with grace, share their gift with you. Not one person can do all things. And again, uh, our world says something different. You can do whatever you choose to do. That's not true. It's not true. Every person has been given gifts. What do we have, says Paul, that we did not receive? So we have no need to be boastful in our gifts or negligent in our use of gifts. So we are gifted to serve one another so that God may be glorified. There is no notion in the scriptures anywhere about individualistic Christianity. There's no notion anywhere that suggests that. We are melded together through the gifts of grace that God gives us. If anyone speaks as one who speaks the word of, word of God, God is the origin of words of truth. As one who serves by the strength that God supplies, God is the origin of strength for service. The strength that God provides for the purpose that God intends leading to the praise that God deserves. See, we are called and enabled to praise, worship and proclaim the glory of God through our union with Christ and to live as his ambassadors. And all of that will only come as we see this great glory of God, the fact that Christ comes and dwells with us, we are united with him, that the Spirit brings us to know that truth, that the triune God is transforming us day by day, that everything we have is by grace and we're called to love and serve. Easy, right? It's easy to talk about, but you see, why our our biblical understanding is so important that it has all of these practical, real outcomes. Let's pray. Father, you have so much to tell us because you are all wisdom uh, and even though we will spend eternity with you, we will never fully fathom the depth of who you are. So Lord, thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for your, for your revelation in your Son, uh, the truth of your Spirit, who shows us just how wonderful you are, our God. Lord, I pray that we will deepen our understanding and that understanding will change our minds and our hearts and our lives, that we may truly reflect who you are. Lord, thank you for your ongoing day-by-day grace in being so uh, patient with us, so tender-hearted with us, so wonderful to us. Lord, we just pray that you will give us the power uh, to respond to who you are and to reflect your nature into the relationships that we have and the world in which we live. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.